0: Got to send this out to space and back. What's up, internet? How's it going, everybody? Uh, Coming at you live from Mexico. Tomorrow begins the professional managerial class consciousness course. And... The uh, idea of the university course has been going now for uh, two weeks. Something I did for that course that I think a lot of people have found useful, or at least I don't know about a, a lot of people, but all the right people found it useful, was reading The Idea of the University by Carl Jaspers aloud as an audiobook. Uh, making it accessible to people who would be taking the course, but will be too busy to sit down and turn pages. Now, uh, you know, i have you've all probably heard me say this a lot at this point, but uh, reading and listening are not mutually exclusive. I think people who are most resistant to listening to an audiobook uh, think that it's an either or. And once you realize that you have to read things multiple times usually to really click with them, uh, especially when, they're, when it's good stuff, a lot of people open up to the idea of listening to something on the first pass. And so what I hope that you will gain from this is whether it's worth coming back to for you in the future. Uh, also that you will gain a sense for the voice of the author. I think that the voice of an author can really come through. And you get a sense for what they're about, uh, even just from an excerpt of some nonfiction. You can get a sense for where the author is coming from. Um, and if you don't have that, you, you could really be missing out on something important. And when it comes to this PMC course, It's kind of a hot topic, or at least, I don't know, it's not hot in the sense that it's popular. It's like not a lot of people are talking about it, but it's a touchy issue for some people, as we discussed in the week in review that just occurred. So, I think it would behoove us then, or like be beneficial in some way, to actually turn to one of the readings for the course and if I have my way, I will do assisted readings for all of the excerpts for the PMC course. It's not like we're reading entire books. And so, what I suspect is that I should be able to do little streams where I actually just read them aloud. These are not standard audiobooks because I'm adding to them as we go, which actually helps me if there were to ever be an accusation of copyright infringement for reading it aloud. Okay, that should, though this is not in the public domain, uh, because I am doing exegesis as it goes, it should be okay. But with that said, my promise to you is that I'm going to do my utmost to keep my personal opinions out of it. And to just, you know, I will only really expand on a section if I think that I can add some some context for you because we're not doing the entire reading. This excerpt is all we're going to be reading in the course. People are obviously encouraged to go listen to and or read the entire thing on their own, but you don't need to. It's an introductory course. And so we're just going to go with the excerpts. So with all of that said, I think it's like 15 pages long. It says 20 right there, but I don't know. It's a PDF. That's what it says. So Ayo in the chat. Anne is in the chat, I believe. Master Signified Bodies is actually watching this on a big screen television right now. So what's up to Anne? What's up to Andrew? What's up to anybody else who will be joining now or in the near future, as well as all the people who will be taking the course or checking this out in the future future later on? Let's get to it. All right. Um, Oh, one last thing before we actually start. I'll just say that Thomas Frank is... A uh, basic social democrat. Um, he's not a radical or extreme radical in any sense of the word, and so I think a lot of people don't take him seriously. But his, uh, or at least a lot of radical-leaning type people, don't take him as seriously. But I think that there is um, there's a lot to be gained from taking this seriously, because sometimes it takes someone who knows how to speak to normies, uh, who's really done the research uh, to really bring it all together and kind of say the thing that gets the finger on the pulse in in a way that I think this section does. Uh, And the last thing, oh yeah, tomorrow morning I'll probably be reading the other excerpt for this week, which is the one that Elton LK will be lecturing on, which is an excerpt from another Normie author, uh, but this one a bit more radical, Barbara Ehrenreich. Okie dokie. The Highborn and the Well-Graduated. In his syndicated New York Times column for November 21st, 2008, David Brooks saluted President-elect Obama for the savvy personnel choices he was then announcing. This was before Brooks had become one of the president's favorite columnists, before the fabled bromance between the two men burst into the raging blaze of mutual admiration it would one day become but the spark was there already. It was the educational pedigree of the then-forming Team Obama that won the columnist's esteem. Nearly every person Brooks mentioned, the new president's economic advisors, his foreign policy advisors, even the First Lady, had collected a degree from an Ivy League institution, more than one in most cases. The new administration would be a valedictocracy, Brooks joked, ruled by those who graduate first in their high school classes. Brooks had been obsessed with the tastes and habits of the East Coast meritocracy for as long as I've been reading him, and though he sometimes mocks, he always comes back to his essential conviction, the article of faith that makes a writer like him fit so comfortably at the times. The well-graduated are truly great people. And on that day in 2008, when Brooks beheld the incoming Obama crew with their Harvard-certified talent, Lord, he just about swooned. I find myself tremendously impressed by the Obama transition, he wrote. Why? Because they are picking the best of the Washington insiders, open-minded individuals who are not ideological and who exhibit lots of practical creativity. They were admired professionals, the very best their respective disciplines had to offer. did not point out that choosing so many people from the same class background, every single one of them, as he said, was a professional, might by itself guarantee closed minds and ideological uniformity. Nobody else pointed this out either. We always overlook the class interests of professionals because we have trouble thinking of professionals as a class in the first place. Like David Brooks, we think of them merely as the best. They are where they are because they are so smart, not because they've been born to an earldom or something. Truth be told, lots of Americans were relieved to see people of talent replace George W. Bush's administration of hacks and cronies back in 2008. Those were frightening times. Still, if we want to understand what's wrong with liberalism, what keeps this movement from doing something about inequality or about our reversion to a 19th century social pattern, this is where we're going to have to look, at the assumptions and collective interests of professionals, the Democratic Party's favorite constituency. I said I would be doing a little bit of extra contextualization and stuff like that. And so the reason that we're starting out with this text instead of a more radical author on the topic is because everything he has to say about the Democratic Party is equally applicable to the Democratic Socialists of America, both the anarchist and the Marxist. Factions as well as the reformist versus the revolutionary factions. It doesn't matter which factions you're in it's almost like when the dominant left presence in the country that you're in assumes a bunch of things and You haven't critically thought through a lot of those things. You might just have inculcated some of those things Even if you disagree with them on a lot of things What am I saying? I think he does a good job saying it himself, so we'll just come back to it. The historian Christopher Lash, a kind of cosmic opposite of David Brooks, wrote in 1965 that modern radicalism or liberalism can best be understood as a phase of the social history of the intellectuals. My goal in this book is to bring Lash's dictum up to date. The deeds and positions of the modern Democratic Party, I will argue, can be best... Understood as a phase in the social history of the professionals. Who are the professionals? To begin with, they are not the same thing as Lash's intellectuals. His category is made up mainly of writers and academics. It is defined by the critical stance they take toward the workings of society. They aren't really enough intellect there really aren't enough intellectuals to make up a distinct social class in the way that in the way that term is traditionally used professionals on the other hand are an enormous and prosperous group the people with jobs that the people with the jobs that every parent wants their child to grow up and get in addition to doctors lawyers the clergy architects and engineers the core professional groups the category includes economists experts in international development political scientists managers financial planners computer programmers aerospace designers and even people who write books, like this one. Professionals are a high-status group, but what gives them their lofty... So, and really quick, and then that this is one of those things that people are going to say is, well, okay, just because you have a high-status group, that doesn't make it a class. I think that the person with a basis in Marxism who cares the most about communicating with Marxists would be Barbara Ehrenreich um, and... Uh, We will be discussing her a little tomorrow, but also her essential theoretical treaties on the topic of why this really is a class category uh, next week, so stay tuned for that. Professionals are a high-status group, but what gives them their lofty position is learning, not income. They rule because they are talented, because they are smart. A good sociological definition of professionalism is a second hierarchy, second to the main hierarchy of money, that is, based on credentialed expertise, which is to say, a social order supported by test scores and advanced degrees and defended by the many professional associations that have been set up over the years to define correct practice, enforce professional ethics, and wage war on the unlicensed. Another distinguishing mark of the professions is their social authority. Ivan Illich, a critic prominent in the 1970s, also I was just talking about him the other day because he is like one of the main people referenced in critical pedagogy, once defined professionals by noting their power to prescribe. Professionals are the people who know what ails us and who dispense valuable diagnoses. Professionals predict the weather. They organize our financial deals and determine the rules of engagement. They design our cities and draw the traffic patterns through which the rest of us travel. Professionals know when someone is guilty of a moral or criminal misdeed, and they also know precisely what form of retribution that culpability should take. Teachers know what we must learn. Architects know what our buildings must look like. Economists know that the Federal Reserve's discount rate should Economists know what the Federal Reserve's discount rate should be. Art critics know what, it is, what is in good taste and what is in bad. Although we are the subjects of these diagnoses and prescriptions, the group to which professionals ultimately answer is not the public, but their own peers and, of course, their clients. They listen mainly to one another. The professions are autonomous. They are not required to heed voices from below their circle of expertise. In this way, the professions build and maintain monopolies over their designated fields. Now, monopoly is admittedly a tough word, but it is not really a controversial one among sociologists who write about the professions. Monopolizing knowledge, according to one group of sociologists, is a baseline description of what professions do. This is why they restrict entry to their fields. Professions certify the expertise of insiders, while negating and dismissing the knowledge claims of outsiders. Specialized knowledge is, of course, a necessity in this complicated world of ours. From ship captains to neurosurgeons, modern society depends heavily on people with technical expertise, and so nations grant professionals their elevated status. The sociological theory continues, in exchange for a promise of public service. The professions are supposed to be disinterested occupations or even social trustees. Unlike other elements of society, they are not supposed to be motivated by profit or greed. This is why we, are, we still find advertising by lawyers and doctors somewhat off-putting, and why Americans were once shocked to learn that radio personalities took money to play records they didn't genuinely like, because professionals are supposed to answer to a spirit more noble than personal gain. With the rise of the post-industrial economy in the last few decades, the range of professionals has exploded. To use the voguish term, these are knowledge workers, and many of them don't fit easily into the old framework. They are often employees rather than independent practitioners, which by the way would make them not petty bourgeois taking orders from some corporate manager instead of spending their lives in private practice. These modern professionals aren't workers, per se, and they aren't capitalists either, strictly speaking. Some professions share certain features with these other groups, however. The accountants at your neighborhood tax preparation chain, for example, are sometimes just scraping by, and teachers are often union members, just like blue-collar workers. At the end of the scale, certain lucky professionals in Silicon Valley happen to be our leading capitalists. And the gulf between professional hedge fund managers and the rich folks whose money they invest is small indeed. As these last two examples suggest, the top ranks of the professions are made up of highly affluent people. They are not the billionaire Walmart clan, but they have a claim to leadership nevertheless. These two power structures, one of ownership, and the other of knowledge lives side by side, sometimes in conflict with one another, but usually in comity. And uh, I would just add uh, these two power structures, one of ownership and the other of knowledge, could have been stated as these two power structures, one of ownership and the other of control. So the ones who own the means of production are not the ones who control the means of production in most cases whereas ford had overseen every aspect of his factories and the the whole mechanized process of developing those model t those model t's back in the day the whole thing had come like he was there overseeing every aspect of it he was essentially managing it and controlling it at the same time that he was owning it. okay. But there is today this professionalism gap between the ones who control and the ones who own. And as we'll talk about from other sources later, the ones who control um, are the ones who have to make hiring and layoff decisions. They're the ones who have to re-rationalize the workplace every time there's a profitability crisis. They're the ones who often oversee mergers. And though the owners might have veto privileges on a variety of things, and obviously they have a vested interest in making the numbers go up, the management has its own interests that sometimes conflict with the owners. But in almost every case, their interests conflict with the longer term interests of the working class as a whole. The concern of this book is not investigating the particular expertise of any given profession, but rather the politics of professionalism in a larger sense. As the political scientist Frank Fisher writes in Technocracy and the Politics of Expertise, professionalism is more than an occupational category, it is a post-industrial ideology. For many, it provides an entire framework for understanding our modern world. As a a political ideology, professionalism carries enormous potential for mischief. For starters, it is obviously and inherently undemocratic, prioritizing the views of experts over those of the public. That is tolerable to a certain degree. No one really objects to rules mandating that only trained pilots fly jetliners, for example. Yeah, right? Everyone prefers that trained pilots fly jetliners. But what happens when an entire category of experts stops thinking of itself as social trustees? What happens when they abuse their monopoly power? What happens when they start looking mainly after their own interests, which is to say, start acting as a class? Yo, Nance, welcome, welcome, welcome. Sup, Master Signified Bodies, welcome, welcome, welcome. Good to see you both in the chat. I will try to keep my eye on chat, but also I will be reading, because I, the, uh, it's going to be a little engagement with the chat and mostly getting through this reading. But Nance, this is one of the uh, excerpts for the readings that I will be talking about tomorrow. I will be reading the other one in the morning, and... You won't have to write a, first of all, no one has to write reflections when they're taking these classes. It's not mandatory, but if you want to do the thing, then um, that will be due next week. Um, Next week on Wednesday is when I suspect I will read, I'll do a live stream reading Barbara Ehrenreich's full essay. The one that I was saying is a bit of a treatise on the topic. Uh, Nance says, coming to realize a lot of people who talk about the PMC use it incorrectly, or at least in a less careful way. I, 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 you know, I don't know who the people are that use it in the first place, outside of like Catherine Lou, But um, I think that whoever was using the term must have done a very bad job using it. And it doesn't help that there's just, no, well, until tomorrow, no classes on the internet where you can really have a sort of introduction to the concept where people who agree or disagree with the concept could have a shared basis in the textual world or field um, that has been developing the term. And if there was, I would have taken it. My God. Anyway, next section, ruling in the name of knowledge. Americans have pondered these questions before. The profession's claim of superior, of superior authority and of a monopoly on the power to prescribe rubbed early Americans the wrong way, and in the first decades of the Republic, the country reacted harshly against them. In the Jacksonian period, a time of profound anti-aristocratic feeling, the ideology of merit clashed in America with the ideological egalitarianism of the political system, as the sociologist Magali Larson writes. It was impossible to reconcile equality, Americans believed, with the professional ideal of a legally sanctioned clique of experts. Cartels and monopolies were in bad odor back then, and the public rebelled against the professions as attempts to maintain aristocratic entitlement through mystification and concealment, as, a, as an 1835 newspaper put it. Many states in those days took the revolt against professionalism so far as to repeal medical licensing requirements. The anti-professional... And by the way, I don't think he's going to talk about it right here, but uh, this is something that gets brought up by a lot of the people I've read, and that is that the medical licensing requirements were often done in an openly hostile way towards local doulas, midwives and uh, independent, um, usually women, who were doing healthcare work. So the indigenous pro- population of every locale everywhere. The anti-professional spirit insisted for decades. The Farmers' Alliance and the Knights of Labor, two 19th century workers' organizations, specifically excluded lawyers for membership. I myself have seen a populist inspired sculpture garden in western Kansas in which a figure labeled labor is crucified by statues representing the professions, doctor, preacher, lawyer, banker. It sounds like a meme that got made into a statue. I guess I guess they were, I guess that the the, the the workers were were memeing all the way back then in the 19th century. Well, that's pretty crazy. I, 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 I want to see that. I would actually, next time I travel to Kansas, okay, I, no one travels to Kansas, first of all. I, I travel through Kansas to get to Missouri where you can visit Michael Downs, or at least where I can. That's, that's the only goal there. But maybe next time on my way through, I'm going to have to find this sculpture garden where the figure labo- labeled Labor is being crucified by the uh, doctor, preacher, lawyer, banker. Amid the enormous strikes and the sudden catastrophic recessions of the Gilded Age, however, a group of reformers who came to be known as progressives came to see professionalization as a positive thing. Indeed, as the only hope for society being torn apart in the war between capital and labor. Yes, and so this is where you can put your little radical hat on and think about how... The old left, its successes in organizing the working class that was already self aware to some degree, having to have its own organizations because it lacked legal representation or rights. The old left was thwarted by progressives. Progressives were people who saw the successes of the old left and said, That's scary, I don't like it. And so, Focusing on that period, which really comes down to at the exact same time that Lenin's doing what he's doing, you've got Woodrow Wilson, President Woodrow Wilson, followed by FDR. These guys, their entire projects was an explicitly elitist way of thwarting working class mobilization and their focus on public education and on professionalization at the time was a direct and explicit reaction to the successes that the workers' movement was seeing at the time. Professionals, recast now as an enlightened managerial class, were supposed to bring about an industrial peace that would be impossible under the profit motive alone. The progressives of this period could be frankly and openly elitist on the subject. Herbert Crowley, the author of the seminal work The Promise of American Life, and later a founder of the New Republic, openly advocated for a sort of neo-aristocratic order led by exceptional citizens and left-wing critics ranging from Thorstein Veblen to R.H. Tawney, imagined capitalism tamed by professional expertise. This was also the time that W.E.B. Du Bois wrote the uh, The talented tenth, which uh, Frank does not bring up here, but was an explicit call for the talented tenth of the African American population to separate itself from the rest of the race and to to it was essentially saying like look, every race has a talented tenth ten percent and If our people is to ever get better, then we're going to have to have like this talented 10th organize, keep itself separated, raise itself to new heights, and then it will paternalistically raise up the rest of the race. That was something very controversial at the, uh, I don't know if it was controversial at the time, because as this is saying, progressivism was very popular at the time, but um, Du Bois... Uh, gets criticized for this a lot in the scholarship today for obvious reasons, even though, of course, there is something to the fact that there are talented people and they shouldn't be discouraged and they should even be hooked up with the resources that they need to excel, right? We can walk and chew bubble gum at the same time, right? The progressives had a point. Many of the industrial world's Problems were and are highly technical ones that require the attention of well trained experts. Markets could obviously not be counted on to bring about democratic solutions to the scourge of exploitation, and layoffs, and workplace injuries. These were no easy Jefferson there were no easy Jeffersonian ways around these problems. For many years, the progressive ideal seemed like a brilliant success. Franklin Roosevelt's Brain trust, for example, still stands today as a symbol of the liberal possibilities of professionalism, as do the New Deal's many interventions in the workings of the market. Economies could be managed, at least in part. World wars could be planned and won. An assortment of consumer goods could be essentially guaranteed to each member of the broad middle class. The administration of FDR was something of a golden age for government by professionals, Although, as we shall see, one that was different in important ways from our current regime of rule by expert. Let me confess here a nostalgia for the managerial professionalism that I have just described. It was, after all, the system that administered the country's greatest corporations, its news media, its regulatory agencies, and its welfare state in the more benevolent years of the American century. Here and there, in certain corners of our national life, this older organizational form still survives, keeping our passenger jets from exploding and our highway bridges from collapsing. But generally speaking, that system of professionalism was long ago subverted and transformed into something different and more rapacious. Today we live in a world of predatory bankers, predatory educators, even predatory healthcare providers all of them out for themselves. I told you rhetorically this is normie shit. Like He's acting like that wasn't the case back in FDR's time. But his, oh, I'm a bit nostalgic for those good old days, is a head nod for the liberals who miss the good old FDR days. And I've met some people who were alive at the time who felt like this guy was saving the world. And in a lot of ways, coming out of the Great Depression was... uh, transformative experience. And so, yeah, you can't really blame the people who he's trying to appeal to here. The corruption of the professions is a grand story in its own right and one that parallels the story told in this book. It starts at roughly the same time. It features a number of the same characters and so on. With a few exceptions, however, it is not my subject here. What concerns us is instead... What concerns us, instead, are popular attitudes toward the professions, and by the 1970s, they were definitely starting to sour. Technocracy was the new term for describing the reign of professionalism, and its connotations were almost entirely negative. Rule by expert, it began to seem, excluded rule by the people. It was dehumanizing and mechanical. In a technocracy, the important policy decisions were made in faraway offices that were insulated from the larger world of society. The people making the decisions identified far more with society's rulers than they did with the ruled, and their decisions often completely ignored public concerns. Bussing was one of the era's classic examples of failed technocratic overreach. Which, by the way, if all you've ever thought is that... The desegregation eras, busing, was a positive, positive, all the way down. Then why does the opening essay of the Critical Race Theory Reader, put together by Harvard Law Professor Kimberly Crenshaw and crew, uh, why does it? Why is that opening essay about how much of a technocratic oversight? and sort of a disaster the busing era was in the first place. Yeah, he doesn't cite that. Um, but I find it interesting that here you have someone... I mean, yeah, in every way, shape, and form, Kimberly Crenshaw is a PMC, uh, kind of uh, talking head in the radic- radical sphere. Um, but at least one thing that they can agree on is that... Uh, Busing was one of the classic examples of a failed technocratic overreach. Another was the Vietnam War, a a catastrophic intervention in which tens of thousands of working class Americans were sent to their deaths, not to mention the vast death toll among the Vietnamese themselves, largely because foreign policy professionals in Washington were unwilling to listen to voices from outside their discipline bearing uncomfortable news. The problems of technocracy were never solved. Instead, technocracy became a way of life with its own mass constituency. Today, as we are so often reminded, we live in a post-industrial age, and in this advanced state of civilization, the demand for expertise has become enormous. Knowledge industries such as software, finance, communication, surveillance, and military contracting are the vital economic sectors of our time, and the corporate world has proceeded to bulk up with armies of middle managers, efficiency experts, laboratory scientists, and public relations specialists. As the professional managerial class grew, its political alignment also changed. Between the Eisenhower era and today, professionals undertook a mass migration from the Republican to the Democratic Party, for reasons that will become apparent as we proceed. In fact, according to the sociologists Jeff Manza and Clem Brooks, Professionals went from being the most Republican social formation in the country in the 1950s to being the most Democratic by the the mid-90s. Professionalism is post-industrial ideology, and today the Democrats are the party of the professional class. The party has other constituencies, to be sure. Minorities, women, and the young, for example. The other pieces of the coalition of the ascendant, but, prof- but professionals are the ones whose technocratic outlook tends to prevail. It is their tastes that are celebrated by liberal newspapers, and it is their particular way of regarding the world that is taken for granted by liberals as being objectively true. Professionals dominate liberalism in the Democratic Party in the same way that Ivy Leaguers dominate the Obama cabinet. In fact, It is not going too far to say that the views of the modern-day Democratic Party reflect, in virtually every detail, the ideological idiosyncrasies of the professional managerial class. Liberalism itself has changed to accommodate its new constituents' technocratic views. Today, liberalism is the philosophy not of the sons of toil, but of the knowledge economy, and specifically of the knowledge economy's winners, the Silicon Valley chieftains, the big university systems, and the Wall Street titans who gave so much to Barack Obama's 2008 campaign. The reason he's referring so much to Obama's 2008 campaign, by the way, dear listeners, is because uh, I think this book was published right before Trump won. And actually, he didn't, He's one of the people who didn't quite see it coming, though at the same time he was alarmed and saying that the sort of elitist approach of the Democratic Party was really risking a loss. So yeah. Liberal thinkers dutifully return the love, fussing over their affluent, highly educated sweethearts with all manner of flattering phrases. These high-achieving professionals are said to be the wired workers who will inherit the future, for example. They are a learning class that truly gets the power of education. They are a creative class that naturally rebels against fakeness and conformity. They are an an innovation class that just can't stop coming up with awesome new stuff. The phrase I will apply to them in the pages that follow is the liberal class, a designation I borrow from the radical writer Chris Hedges, although with a pretty big caveat. The premise of Hedges' book on the subject, Death of the Liberal Class, is that the cohort behind liberal politics is disappearing or has lost its nerve. He writes to mourn their passing. I write to protest their triumph. Pop technocracy. To protest their triumph, why would a person of vivid pink sentiments like me object to the ascendancy of any liberal group? What difference does it make if the driving force behind democratic victory comes from below or from on high? Put in a different way. What does it mean when the dominant constituency of the left party in a two-party system is a high-status group rather than the traditional working class? I take this to be one of the most sentences from the book as well as chapter one, and so I will restate it. Put in a different way, what does it mean when the dominant constituency of the left party in a two-party system is a high-status group rather than the traditional working class? One thing we know for sure that it means is soaring inequality. When the left party in a system severs its bonds to working people, when it dedicates itself to the concerns of a particular slice of high-achieving affluent people, issues of work and income inequality will inevitably fade from its list of concerns. We know this for starters, because this is exactly what has happened. Issues of income inequality have been recontextualized so thoroughly in our time that certain Democrats even have trouble understanding what their forebears of the 1930s and 40s meant when they talked about the subject. For our modern liberals, it is obvious that careers should be open to talent and it is outrage. When And it is an outrage when barriers of any kind prevent the able from rising to the top. Another term for this understanding of equality is meritocracy, which is one of the great defining faiths of the professional class. Meritocracy is about winners and ensuring that everyone has a chance to become one. Quote, the areas in which the left has made the most significant progress, writes the journalist Chris Hayes, Gay rights, inclusion of women in higher education, the end of de jure racial discrimination are the battles it has fought or is fighting in favor of making the meritocracy more meritocratic. The areas in which it has suffered its worst defeats, collective action to provide provide universal public goods, mitigating rising income inequality, are those that fall outside the meritocracy's purview. Another reason we know that a party of professionals will will care little about inequality is because professionals themselves care little about it. While this segment of the population tends to be very liberal on questions of civil liberties and sexual mores, the sociologist Stephen Brint tells us that professionals are, quote, not at all liberal on economic and equality-related issues, on anything having to do with organized labor as we shall see. They are downright conservative. The problem with such broad brush generalization... Okay, and right here... And so everyone... Every time this stuff comes up, people always appeal to the exception or say, you can't judge a book by its cover, blah, blah, blah. Well, of fucking course, we're doing some broader analysis. That's the point of a class analysis. Individuals can obviously um, become class conscious and do their utmost to... Fight for the working class as opposed to their own professional peer group, right? (coughs) Excuse me. The problem with such broad brush generalizations about any social stratum, of course, is that there are lots of exceptions and a group of educated and often sophisticated individuals naturally contains lots of honorable folks who care sincerely about society's well-being. Many of them understand the madness of a deregulated market system as it spins out of control. But in a sweeping sociological sense, professionals as a class do not get it. This is because inequality does not contradict, defy or even inconvenience the logic of professionalism. On the contrary, inequality is essential to it. Professionals after all are life's officer corps. They give the orders, they write the prescriptions. Status is essential to professionalism, according to sociologist Larson, achieving a more exalted level in life's hierarchy is the most central dimension of the professionalization project. What she means is that inequality is what it's all about. Sometimes the privileges accorded to the professions are enshrined in law. Not just anyone is allowed to step into a courtroom and start pleading before a judge, for example, And even when they aren't, they are maintained by artificial scarcity by what Larson calls in her classic 1977 book on the subject, a monopoly of expertise. Meritocracy is what makes these ideas fit together. It is the official professional credo, according to one group of sociologists, the conviction that the successful deserve their rewards, that the people on top are there because they are the best. This is the first commandment of the PMC. These days, meritocracy has come to seem so reasonable that many of us take it for granted as the true and correct measure of human value. Do well in school and you earn your credential. Earn your credential and you are admitted into the ranks of the professions. Become a professional and you receive the respect of the public plus the nice house in the suburbs and the fancy car and all the rest. Meritocracy makes so much sense to us that barely anyone thinks of challenging it, except on its own terms. For President Barack Obama, for example, belief in meritocracy is a conviction of the most basic sort. Obama's faith laying cream rising to the top, writes Jonathan Alter in his account of the early days of the Obama presidency. The president believed this, Alter continues, for the most personal of reasons, because this was the system that had propelled him to the top. Because he himself was a product of the great American post-war meritocracy, Alter continues, he could never fully escape seeing the world from the status ladder he had ascended. Obama proceeded to fill his administration with the graduates of the most prestigious universities and professional schools, in turn causing David Brooks to feel such optimism for the country. At some level, Alter writes, Obama bought into the idea that top drawer professionals had gone through a fair sorting process, the same process that had propelled him and Michelle to the Ivy League and were therefore in some way deserving of their elevated status. What this doctrine means for the politics of... And I have to say, at this point, for me, honestly, I, there's, I wouldn't blame a person for saying So? So? Right? Like what? We just we just hate all hierarchies? Is that the... No. I mean, humans should reach for the stars and do their best to become the best at whatever it is that they set themselves to. We want the best doing things, right? But just because you have a degree or just because someone else went to the same university as you doesn't mean that you're like in some elevated peer group that is elite because of merit. First of all, but there's a bigger problem, a much, much, much bigger problem. And that is the way that this sort of whitewashes um, inequality. Okay. It, It sort of takes inequality and says, look, we shouldn't be worried about poverty per se. We just should be worried about the wrong people being in poverty, as in talented people who if they had had the right resources, could have risen from that situation. Okay. Everyone else just deserves to be there, though. That's the thing. That's the subtext there. What this doctrine means for the politics of income inequality should be clear, a profound complacency. For successful professionals, meritocracy is a beautifully self-serving doctrine, entitling them to all manner of rewards and status because they are smarter than other people. For people on the receiving end of inequality, for those who have just lost their home, for example, or who are having trouble surviving on the minimum wage, the implications of meritocracy are equally unambiguous. To them, this this ideology says, forget it. You have no one to blame for your problems but yourself. Now, obviously, Republicans also adopt this speaking point. There is a right PMC in this country as well. Not in Mexico. Well, there probably is in Mexico. I, didn't, I don't mean this country. I mean the, the author's country. There is no solidarity in a meritocracy. The very idea contradicts the ideology of the well-graduated technocrats who rule us. As we, see, as we shall see, leading members of the professional class show enormous respect for one another, what I will call professional courtesy, but they feel a precious little sympathy for the less fortunate members of their own cohort." for the adjuncts frozen out of the academic market for tenure, for colleagues who get fired, or even for the kids who don't get into good colleges. That life doesn't shower its blessings on people who can't make the grade isn't a shock or an injustice, it's the way things ought to be. This has all sorts of important consequences for liberalism, but let us here take note of just one before proceeding. Professionals do not hold that other democratic constituency, organized labor, in particularly high regard. This attitude is documented in study after study of professional class life. One reason for this is because unions signify lowliness, not status. But another is because solidarity, the core value of unions, stands in stark contradiction to the doctrine of individual excellence that every profession embodies. The idea that someone should command good pay for doing a job that doesn't require specialized training seems to professionals to be an obvious fallacy. Which is why this whole like, oh, that's a low-skill labor job talking point. That's why that works, right? Because people are like, well, yeah, you got to work your ass off if you want to have six-figure salary and a car, you know? Got to work your ass off if you want to get through college and pay off your house. I mean, come on. Uh, never mind the fact that in the 1970s, a janitor could support the wife and kids and own a house, right? The panacea of education. It is not a coincidence that the two most successful Democratic leaders of recent years, Bill Clinton and Barack Obama, We're both plucked from obscurity by prestigious universities, nor is it surprising that both of them eventually signed on to a social theory in which higher education is the route to individual success and to national salvation as well. Educational achievement is, after all, the foundation of the profession's claim to higher status. It should not surprise us that the liberal class regards the university as the greatest and most necessary social institution of all or that members of this cohort reflexively propose more education as the answer to just about anything you care to bring up." And that actually is like one reason that a lot of people feel called to become teachers, God bless their hearts, is because at the end of the day, the reason that things are so bad is because there's just a lot of ignorant people. Ignorant people who don't know what their interests are. Ignorant people who are suckers. And if they just had more education, then that would have taken care of that. And so, I mean, to some degree, there's truth there, obviously. Uh, But the idea that education is the solution to poverty, when there's a ton of essential labor that doesn't require credentials, presupposes that there's going to be an entire stratum of people who... For whatever reasons, because they couldn't kick it in high school, because they couldn't get into college, because whatever came up, they deserve to be breaking their backs, digging ditches because really they could have bettered their situation. They could have, right? That's that point. And so the thing I had already said about Woodrow Wilson during the development of professionalism in the beginning of the 20th century and how that was rolled out with public education in an age-segregated and coerced schooling institution where discipline and getting people to show up on time and think that they are deserving of their rank in reference to their peer groups, all of that comes in as a direct counter to working-class solidarity. And the whole plan was to cultivate a sense of meritocracy in the ones who are ascendant out of those classes and peer groups and to make everyone who doesn't fit the bill for college or for an advanced well-salaried career feel like they deserve failure and that it's a personal failing, not anything having to do with the larger society as a whole. Yeah. College can conquer unemployment as well as, so bringing it back, this is where he really starts bringing in that education is seen as the solution to uh, poverty. College can conquer unemployment as well as racism, they say, urban decay as well as inequality. Education will make us more tolerant. It will dissolve our doubts about globalization and climate change. It will give us the STEM skills we need as a society to compete. The liberal class knows, as a matter of deepest conviction, that there is no social or political problem that cannot be solved with more education and job training. Indeed, the only critique they will acknowledge of this beloved institution is that it, too, is not meritocratic enough. If we just launch more charter schools, give everyone a fair shot at the SAT, and crank out the student loans, then we will have done all that is humanly possible to do. To the liberal class, every big economic problem is really an education problem, a failure by the losers to learn the right skills and get the credentials everyone knows you'll need in the society of the future. Take inequality, the real problem, many liberals believe, is that not enough poor people get a chance to go to college and join the professional managerial elite. Driving this point home is the object of report after report from the Hamilton Project, a democratic think tank that is named, tellingly, for the original advocate of an American ruling elite. Other leading members of the liberal class have flogged the point relentlessly over the years, a sampling in bullet point form. If there is an income divide in America, it is over education," wrote Democratic media strategist Bill Knapp in the Washington Post in, 2000, in 2012, and this makes sense. People who are better educated should make more money. What I fundamentally believe, and what the president believes, Arne Duncan, Obama's Secretary of Education, told a reporter in 2012, is that the only way to end poverty is through education. The best way by far to improve economic opportunity and to reduce inequality is to increase the educational attainment and skills of American workers, declared Federal Reserve Chairman Ben Bernanke to the graduating class at Harvard in 2008, a group much perturbed by inequality. Thomas Friedman, Obama's other favorite newspaper columnist, comes back to the subject again and again. Quote, The biggest issue... In the world today is growth. And in this information age, improving educational outcomes for more young people is now the most important lever for increasing economic growth and narrowing income inequality, he wrote in 2012. In other words, education is now the key to sustainable power. To the liberal class, this is a fixed idea as open to evidence-based refutation as creationism is to fundamentalists. If poor people want to stop being poor, poor people must go to college. But of course, this isn't really an answer at all. It's a moral judgment handed down by the successful from the vantage of their own success. The professional class is defined by its educational attainment. And every time they tell the story, that what it needs is more schooling they are saying inequality is not a failure of the system it is a failure of you this way of thinking about inequality offers little to the many millions of americans the majority of americans in fact who did not do who did not or will not graduate from college it dismisses as though a moral impossibility The well-known fact that there have been and are places in the modern world where people with high school diplomas can earn a good living, like, say, the northern states of the USA between 1945 and 1980, or the Germany of today. Then there are disturbing reports like the recent study showing that in terms of wealth, black and Hispanic college graduates actually fared significantly worse in the late recession than did members of those groups who hadn't gone to college. The people in question were the ones who did everything right, who went through life the way our society instructs us to, and they were punished for it. And that's only the beginning of the problems. Who is to say that a college degree by itself is the silver bullet? In the arms race of merit, perhaps it's getting straight A's that makes you worthy or going to a good school or studying the STEM subjects or not wasting time on the STEM subjects. Even then, the education panacea offers nothing to the ones who check every box and who still find, after they graduate, that there are simply no jobs out there and that the jobs that exist pay poorly. A panacea, by the way, is like a grand solution to everything. So to say the education panacea is to say education as the grand solution to everything. But nothing can dissuade the leaders of the liberal class from this faith. Not the many scandals reverberating through the universities. Not the much-discussed misery that has engulfed high-achieving humanities PhDs. Not the crushing weight of the student loans. Not the perverse fact that the quality of American higher ed has declined while its price tag has grown so massively. Nor can the leaders of the professional class see the absurdity of urging everyone else to do exactly as they themselves did to make their way to the top. It is as if some oil baron were to proclaim that the unemployed could solve their problems if they just found good places to drill for oil, or if some mutual fund manager were to suggest that the solution to inequality was for everyone to put their savings in the stock market. How's it going, everybody? What's up, chat? What's up, what's up, what's up? How's it going? We're nearing the end here. I will probably say a few concluding thoughts. Um, I like that he's about to get into a section that will draw upon the book by Jeff Schmidt, the author of Disciplined Minds, because that has been, for me, a very powerful book. This next section is called The Pathologies of Professionalism. And uh, I guess I'll just make a quick little announcement here. Uh, Tomorrow at... Uh eight wait. Yeah, tomorrow at eight p.m. New York City time, which is to say five PM uh LA time, begins the course Professional Managerial Class Consciousness, taught by yours truly, as well as Elton LK of the Working Class Intelligentsia podcast. He's someone I met through organizing work and I really love everything that he does. And so um, though we have our various disagreements and things, we ultimately come together around, I think, all the most important things. And so this course is one of you will probably be seeing bits of in the near future on this channel, like you are right now, even if you're not signed up for it. But if you do want to sign up for it, it is $50. If you are broke as fuck and want access, um, you can always reach out to me at theoryplebe at gmail.com and we'll talk about it. Uh, I don't want finances to block access. But at the same time, most courses are sold for hundreds of dollars. And so the software to run a course, if you're going to do it right, is not cheap and it comes with all kinds of cool features like dedicated forums so that as time goes on, the Theory Underground will develop conversational hubs where you can expect that if you are a part of the conversation or that if someone else is a part of the conversation that you are in. They have or are doing some of the same readings because conversation with people who don't have a shared basis in the texts are generally bullshit. Yeah, I think so anyway. Well, anyway, it's only 50 bucks and it's going to go for eight weeks. There will be for meetings with lectures, and on the in-between weeks, people have the option of posting their reflections in the forum. And uh, what I really look forward to is that uh, on the in-between weeks, I will do streams doing more of these assisted readings. Doesn't that sound fantastic? Doesn't that just make you so excited? you were like, oh my God, I should be reading, but I just can't because I'm too tired and I just want to sit here and play Tetris. And then here I am, I'm doing this and there you are just like Anne playing Tetris right now. I love, I love that she's playing Tetris right now. I'm jealous. I've been playing a lot of Tetris lately. I broke my high score. I feel very good about it. Okay. The pathologies of professionalism. Having people of talent run the vast federal apparatus is clearly a desirable thing. The EPA and the Nuclear Regulatory Commission ought to be under the direction of people who know what they're doing. As surely as qualified engineers should design our bridges and historians should be the ones who teach history. But what we but what are we to make of our modern-day technocracy, a meritocracy of failure in which ineffectual people rise to the top and entire professions accountants real estate appraisers, etc., are roiled by corruption scandals. The answer is that the professional ideology brings with it certain predictable recurring weaknesses. The first of these pitfalls of professionalism is that the people with the highest status aren't necessarily creative or original thinkers. Although the professions are thought to represent the pinnacle of human brilliance, what they are actually brilliant at is defending and applying a given philosophy. I hate that he used the word philosophy there. Really? What he means is a given worldview or ideology in disciplined minds, an important description of the work life of professionals. The physicist Jeff Schmidt tells us that ideological discipline is the master key to the professions. Despite the favorite 60s slogan, Professionals do not question authority. Their job is to apply it. This is the very nature of their work and the object of their training, according to Schmidt. By his definition, professionals are obedient thinkers who implement their employers' attitudes and carefully internalize the reigning doctrine of their discipline, whatever it happens to be. In addition, the professions are structured to shield insiders from accountability. This is what defines the category. Professionals do not have to listen. They are the only occupational group, as a sociologist, Elliot Friedson, put it many years ago, with the recognized right to declare outside evaluation illegitimate and intolerable. Exhibit A of these interlocking pathologies is economics, a discipline that often acts like an ideological cartel set up to silence the heterodox. James K. Galbraith has written a classic description of how it works. Quote, Leading active members of today's economics profession have joined together into a kind of politburo for correct economic thinking. As a general rule, as one might expect from a gentleman's club, this has placed them on the wrong side of every important policy issue, and not just recently, but for decades. They predict Disaster when none occurs. They deny the possibility of events that then happen. No one loses face in this club for having been wrong. No one is disinvited from presenting papers at later annual meetings. And still less is anyone from the outside invited in. End quote. Thank you, Methods World, for saying that you're enjoying my work. And that you found my channel on Reddit. I did not realize anyone on Reddit was so cool as to share this content. So thank you. It's good to know. Um, professional econ- ec- uh, professional economists. Uh, and I, by the way, I did not mean for that to be a diss on Reddit. Reddit has a lot of the best conversations and answers to questions that you can find when just searching for answers to questions. Um, So I did not mean that to be a diss on Reddit. I just did not know people were sharing my stuff. Thank you. Professional economists screw up again and again, and no one cares. The only real accountability they face is from their endlessly forgiving peers in economics departments across the country. Granted, economics is an extreme case. But its thoroughgoing application of the right to disregard criticism has made it a kind of fascinating anti-profession, a brotherhood of folly rather than of expertise." And I just want to say, because he's going to this extreme where he's talking about economics, and I understand why he's talking about economics, because he's about to pivot to talking about Obama's pick of Larry Somers for his cabinet. he had just brought up Jeff Schmidt's book, Disciplined Minds, and Jeff Schmidt is a physicist. And what I found most fascinating from my humanities and social sciences standpoint was that Jeff Schmidt is focusing on how everything about the cultivation of disciplined minds and this professional ideology that people don't realize is an ideology, but they just live it out through their, lo- through their habitus, right? Um, is not just present in the softer sciences or the humanities, but is there in pretty brutal form in the hardest of sciences, the most objective of the sciences, physics. So, whoa, that's fascinating. Really? Physics? Physics can be political. Physics can be ideological. How? How so? You might ask. Obviously, gravity and theorizing gravity, like you're going to have to come up with something that is objectively demonstrable, repeatable, verifiable by third parties so that real, you know, disagreements actually can come to a conclusion in the harder sciences. Yes, yes, yes. But what Jeff Schmidt is focused on in Disciplined Minds is how creative and critical thinkers are the first ones filtered out by the processes of um, admittance to grad school, and then through the processes of grad school itself. Um, the that 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 goes for the kinds of questions that are on the GRE, or the LSAT, or any of these other graduate level um, exams that you have to pass in order to get a higher degree, and. Uh, the, he says that the, the, the reason that uh, critical minds in particular are being filtered out from the professions uh, and graduate school in general is because, I mean, when almost all the funding is coming from the military-industrial complex, they don't want you thinking about where funding comes from. They don't want you thinking about the whole They want you to be a purely analytic thinker in the sense that all you do is look at little tiny problems and deal with those. They don't want people who are thinking about, okay, but why are we doing this? As we've been talking about in Carl Jaspers' The Idea of the University, or as Jaspers talks about in that work, science needs direction. And science only gets its direction from human values, assumptions, priorities not the kind of stuff that can be objectively verified by physics yet nonetheless it drives physics and when people think they are doing physics research in some apolitical way and it just so happens that the laser technology that they are being paid to research comes from some you know front group that's essentially like filtering black money from the, or dark money from the fucking uh, military industrial complex. Yeah, no fucking surprise, okay? Um, People would not be eager to research these things that are being used for war or for surveillance if they knew where the funding was coming from. And so it's not made obvious, but he uses case after case after case throughout disciplined minds to show that physics, even though it's the hardest of the sciences, still has um, this sort of direction behind the supposed neutrality. And so, yeah, I just wanted to say that because here Thomas Frank is drawing from economics, which is like most people would go, well, yeah, economics. It's one of the softer sciences. There's a lot of disputable shit there. It's a lot of it's up for interpretation and it can be heavily ideological. My point, Jeff Schmidt's based because he focuses on physics and it's very useful for us humanities people to learn that it's not just the humanities that has this problem. Granted, economics is an extreme case, but its thoroughgoing application of the right to disregard criticism has made it a kind of fascinating anti-profession, a brotherhood of folly rather than of expertise. The peril of orthodoxy is the second great pitfall of professionalism, and it's not limited to economics. Every academic discipline with which I have some experience is similar. International relations, political science, cultural studies even American history. None of them are as outrageous as economics. It is true, but each of them is dominated by some convention or ideology. Those who succeed in a professional discipline are those who best absorb and apply its master narrative. Our modern technocracy can never see the glaring flaw in such a system. For them, merit is always synonymous with orthodoxy. The best and the brightest are, in their minds, always those who went to Harvard, who got the big foundation grant, whose books are featured on NPR. When the merit-minded President Obama wanted economic expertise to choose one sad example, he sought out the best of the economics discipline. Had, he sought out the best the economics discipline had to offer: former Treasury Secretary and Harvard President Larry Summers. A man who had screwed up time and again, yet was shielded from the consequences by his stature within the economics profession. Look back to the days when government by expert actually When, it, Actually, hold on. I'm going to read the comment here, and then I'll get back to that because I was fucking it up anyway. Uh, but Methods World said it was shared in our critical theory... Oh, cool. Which, which video was, was shared there? Thank you. Look back to the days when government by expert actually worked and you will notice an astonishing thing. Unlike the Obama administration's roster of well-graduated mugwumps, the talented people surrounding Franklin Roosevelt stood very definitely outside the era's main academic currents. Harry Hopkins, Roosevelt's closest confidant, was a social worker from Iowa. Robert Jackson, the U.S. Attorney General whom Roosevelt appointed to the Supreme Court, was a lawyer who had no law degree. Jesse Jones, who ran Roosevelt's bailout program, was a businessman from Texas, with no qualms about putting the nation's most prominent financial institutions into receivership. Mariner Eccles, the visionary whom Roosevelt appointed to run the Federal Reserve, was a small-town banker from Utah with no advanced degrees. Henry Wallace, who was probably the nation's greatest agriculture secretary, studied at Iowa State and came to government after running a magazine for farmers. Harry Truman, FDR's last vice president, had been a successful U.S. senator but had no college degree at all. Even Roosevelt's Ivy Leaguers were often dissenters from professional conventions. John Kenneth Galbraith, who helped to run the office of price administration during World War II, spent his entire career calling classical economics into question. Thurman Arnold, the Wyoming born leader of FDR's antitrust division, wrote a scoffing and derisive book called The Folklore of Capitalism. Just try getting a job in Washington after pulling something like that today. A third consequence of modern day liberals unquestioning reflexive respect for expertise is their blindness to predatory behavior if it comes cloaked in the signifiers of professionalism. Take the sort of complexity we saw in the financial instruments that drove the financial crisis. For old school regulators, I am told, undue financial complexity was an indicator of likely fraud. But for the liberal class, it is the opposite an indicator of sophistication. Complexity is admirable in its own right. The difference in interpretation carries enormous consequences. Do Wall Street commit epic fraud, or are they highly advanced professionals who fell victim to epic misfortune? As we shall see again and again, modern-day liberals pretty much insist on the latter view, treating Wall Street with extraordinary deference, despite all that went wrong despite all that went on during the last decade. This is no doubt due, in part, to Wall Street's enormous political contributions, but anyone seeking to understand this baffling story must also take note of the widely shared view among Democrats that Wall Street is a place of enormous meritocratic prestige on a level equivalent to a high-end graduate school. Wall Street's veneer of professionalism is further buttressed by its complicated technical jargon, which, like other disciplines, the financial industry uses to protect itself from the scrutiny of the public. One final consequence of the ideology of professionalism is the liberal class's obsessive pining for consensus. I have already mentioned President Obama's remarkable zeal for bipartisan agreement. As we shall see, this is not his passion alone. Most of the Democratic leadership has shared these views for decades. For them, a great coming together of the nations educated is the obvious objective of political work. This obsession, so peculiar and yet so typical of our times, arises from the professionals' well-known disgust with partisanship and their faith in what they take to be apolitical solutions. If only they could bring Washington's best together, they believe, they could enact their common knowledge program, that the Obama administration chose to further away months and even years pursuing this fantasy with its health care proposal, with its deficit reduction commission, could probably have been predicted based strictly on the educational pedigree of the president's cabinet choices. Not to be too reductionist here, but it was all a class performance. It was the essence of professionalism. Okay. Next section is last section. It's a short section. But before we get into it, I'm going to say, bringing it back here to the point, this might be written as a book to normie liberals to help them realize they've taken the working class for granted and that in a lot of ways this turn to the PMC has actually cultivated a lot of resentment that people like Tucker Carlson are obviously going to capitalize on. Okay, so it might be that that is the case and therefore he's not going to be applying this analysis to the broader left, especially not the radical left. But I think that obviously that is what uh, Barbara Ehrenreich is going to do and you'll hear a little bit about that tomorrow. But more importantly, bringing it back to ideology, This is not an ideology where you're sat down in a classroom and they put it up in bullet point form and say, you have to memorize the Ten Commandments of Professionalism. And once you've learned these, you'll be able to get your degree once... No, 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 it's not, it is something inculcated. It's the sense of entitlement, of deservingness that comes with status or of the sense of, oh, I deserve my failure if you didn't do so well in that, you know, sorting system called schooling, okay. But this critique does not just apply to the Obama administration. It's common today to hear DSA members say that meritocracy is bad. What they have in mind, obviously, might include the Obama administration, but also goes against Republicans, fair enough. But the sense that if you're not one of the elect, your job is to listen and take orders. If you're not one of the ones of the representative knowledge class, then you, if you're a good one, you're going to follow and obey. And if you're skeptical or critical or ask a lot of questions then they'll act like you're getting uppity, they'll act like you're getting out of place, that you're out of order, who are you to question? Who are you to try to understand things for yourself? What is this? Mind your own business, listen to the experts, shut the fuck up, get back to work. That sentimentality, that mindset, that mode that generally gets characterized as PMC, dominates organizing spaces throughout the United States. It doesn't matter if they're Democrat or if they're anarchist or if they're Marxist. It doesn't matter. It's everywhere. (sighs) That's not to say that this is an insurmountable problem. It does not to say that we need to replace people who are representatives with direct democracy or let the workers decide for themselves or we'll just take our notes from the worker. It, it, that not, none of those things are entailed by questioning this ideology. What the solutions are and how to navigate the fact that this is the situation is a question that needs to be thought through seriously by anyone who is in one of these representational roles, whether you're doing something on social media, on YouTube, uh, mainstream, independent media, it doesn't matter. It's something that's incumbent on anybody who's looking to make things better, not worse. Because if you're looking to make things better, not worse, don't lean into this shit. Don't lean into this mindset. Don't lean into this mode. Okay? That is the first major point that I was hoping to convey tonight. Oh, the video they shared on Reddit was the video in defense of Slavoj Žižek. Well, that's fantastic. I'm so glad and grateful that they shared that. Thank you to whoever shared that. And thank you for uh, letting me know, Methods World. That's really cool. Um, I love that stream. The In Defense of Slavoj Zizek stream was one of the most fun evenings I've had this year, for sure. On the liberalism of the rich, final section. Here we go. Let's do it. I am pressing on a sensitive point here. Democrats cherish their identification as the party of the people, and they find it unpleasant to be reminded that affluent professionals are today among their most dedicated supporters. Democrats' close relationship with the successful is not something they advertise or even discuss openly. Exceptions to this rule are rare. One of the few works I know of that seems to approve, albeit with reservations, of liberalism's alliance with a segment of the upper crust is the 2010 book Fortunes of Change, written by the philanthropy journalist David Callahan. The premise of his argument is that our new liberal plutocracy is different from plutocracies of the past because rich people today are sometimes very capable. Those who get rich in a knowledge economy, the journalist tells us, are well-schooled, they often come from the ranks of highly educated professionals, and consequently they support Democrats, the party that cares about schools, science, the environment, and federal spending for research. It is not a coincidence, Callahan continues, that some of the biggest zones of wealth creation are near major universities. The smart get richer and the dumb get Republicans, I guess. If we accept this equation between wealth and educational accomplishment, it begins to seem unremarkable that in 2008, hedge funds and investment banks made Barack Obama the first Democrat to outraise his Republican opponent on Wall Street. There's a simple reason that financial firms rallied to the Democrat on that occasion, Callahan suggests. Because people on Wall Street, being very smart and very well educated, are natural liberals. As the journalist reminds us, financial companies these days are populated not by jocks, but by quants, by people who are familiar with new financial products for managing risk or structuring debt, such as derivatives. As an example, Callahan points us to the D.E. Shaw Group hedge fund which was funded by a man with a PhD from Stanford who gives enormous sums to Democratic candidates and who also employed former Treasury Secretary Larry Summers for a few years between Summers' gig as president at Harvard and his next gig running President Obama's National Economic Council. Callahan quotes at length from D.E. Shaw's recruiting materials, quote, Our staff includes a number of Rhodes, Fulbright, and Marshall Scholars, Putnam Fellows, and the winners of more than 20 medals in the International Math Olympiad. Current employees include the 2003 U.S. Women's Chess Champion, a life master bridge player, and a Jeopardy winner, along with a number of writers, athletes, musicians, and former professors. Over 100 of our employees hold PhDs, almost 40 are entrepreneurs who previously founded their own companies, and approximately 20% are published authors whose work ranges from highly technical papers in specialized academic journals to award-winning mystery novels. To this honor roll of intellectual and financial achievement, Callahan appends the following observation, this is definitely not the Sarah Palin demographic. No but neither is it a demographic with any particular concern for the fate of working people. Finished. Okay, everybody, thank you so much for joining this evening. It is almost nine o'clock where I am currently located in Calientes, Mexico. And uh, what do I want to say before I sign out? Because I am unemployed currently. I quit my job at Amazon and, and, and I'm doing this full time. Uh, and that's why I'm living in Mexico. So I can cut costs, basically, besides learning Spanish, eating good food, meeting really cool people every day. Every damn day. Um, I'm gonna go ahead and just do the thing where I say, give me help, money, whatever, Go to theory-underground.com forward slash support and there you will find, hopefully, if everything works, a place where you can purchase a copy of my book, Uh, you can purchase uh, time energy for me, you can, uh, whatever. There's all kinds of patron stuff that you can do if you go there, okay? So I'll take it for a quick scroll and explain what we're looking at. Um, This is a video. With, it's a testimonial of uh, Burt Vanderkar saying how much he appreciates uh, what Theory Underground is doing. And it's definitely worth checking out. Uh, we love Burt. You can see here, the Idea of University course is currently for sale, as is Slavoj Žižek's, For They Know Not What They Do. The PMC course that begins tomorrow is a little bit what lower. Oh, it's right here on the left. Okay. So yeah, that that class starts tomorrow. The idea of university class technically started a couple weeks ago, but it will be available on demand after the fact. And I would say that those two classes are easy, beginner level. Okay. Whereas For They Know Not What They Do is going to be hard mode. Okay. Uh, Michael Downs of the Dangerous Maybe blog had to study this stuff for like 20 years, 10 hours a day exhausting, painstaking, line-by-line analysis uh, to get to the point where he is able to break this stuff down and make it as accessible as he is able to, which is a lot. And it's remarkable and enjoyable, and we all love what he's able to do. But speaking of breaking stuff down... Wasn't that just one of the things mentioned um, when, when uh, Thomas Frank here in Listen Liberal was critiquing the, the way that professions hide from the public and its scrutiny behind a bunch of jargon? He was talking about Wall Street, but um, I think that there's some degree of that in professional academic humanities literature as well. There's a way in which a person can write an entire article and you finish reading it and you go, so, and what knowledge was just produced? What, what are they even saying? Even if you know the primary texts that the professor or the author is drawing off of, you're still over here going, and why should I care? And in a lot of cases, you probably shouldn't. It's probably not good for you to care too much. But that's why we at Theory Underground care a lot more about primary texts than we do academic literature, the kind of stuff that circulates in journals, only five people will read, that's ultimately just a way of fitting in with some group where you're going to go to a conference. I'm not saying it's all like that. I have friends. I have friends in the university. They do very important work, they're very serious researchers. It's very impressive stuff, but um, without a self-awareness about how the ideology of professionalism and the PMC functions, uh, specifically in the reproduction of a class society, there's really no hope, is there? Because, I mean, while we're all kind of used to being critical of the Obama administration at this point, I think it's quite common, I think, for leftists to assume, well, if it was me and my people, if it was me and my clique, if it was us, the ones who get it, if we were in that position calling the shots, we would have done it so differently. And I mean, maybe that's true, but also there's also all of these assumptions that bring with it a sort of posture, a sort of condescending, sneering, command and conquer telling people what to do, micromanaging people's daily lives, their thoughts, everything that comes with it. And it's repulsive to regular people. And the critique that this is all just populism is also bullshit. Thomas Frank is a critic of populism, although he defends uh, the the American tradition and roots of populism uh, from people who just say, oh, it's just racism. Uh, He goes, no, Nothing good will ever come from being anti-populist. You don't have to be a populist to stop being anti-populist. But being anti-populist is suicide, especially in the United States. Being anti-populist means telling people they shouldn't find out for themselves, telling people they shouldn't think for themselves, telling people they don't have business reading these books or trying to discuss these things on the internet with other people. No. They should get back to work. They should mind their own business. They should listen to experts, and take orders. And if they're, if they're not doing that, then they will be stigmatized as responsible for everything bad in the world. Well, we don't like that. At least I don't. And uh, yeah, so anyway, if you want to make a donation, theory-underground.com forward slash support. We are a new organization. Um, this website is less than a month old. Uh, It's already got over 50 members um, and it's got basically a social media platform that's linked up to courses. It's everything, almost everything that I've been dreaming of for years and years and years and trying in all kinds of ways to make real. So it's kind of here, folks. Kind of excited about it. You see this little notification up here? Oh, you can't because it's cut off on the screen. Watch. Watch this little notification. That's new. You see that? If I were to click that you would see private messages or at least a private message that someone sent to me because that's right. You can add connections, which is like adding friends and then you can direct message people, make group chats, all this kind of stuff with people who are curious about the same things that you are, hopefully. So that's Theory Underground. I'm David McCarricker. It has been an absolute pleasure to do this with you this evening and I guess That's it. It only took about an hour and a half. So I consider that a success. Cool. Sorry about these glasses, by the way. These are so dorky, but they're important because I'll get a headache if I spend too much time on a screen. It's the blue light filter that I need these for. So anyway, hope you all have a good night. Bye-bye. See you in the morning when we will be back to... To a different excerpt, an assisted reading of a section from Barbara Ehrenreich's popular book, Fear of Falling. Adios.